Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. So welcome again to our Catechism class. Today we're going to finish our month-long journey through Lord's Day 16 in the Heidelberg Catechism by asking question 42. The question asks, Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? And the answer we must give is, Our death is not a satisfaction for our sin, but only a dying to sin and an entering into eternal life. Our instructor wants to know why if Christ has taken our death, Christians themselves must also physically die. It's a logical and a completely fair question. After all, Jesus himself told us in John 11, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Verse 26. But we do die. All of us will die, sooner or later, whether we like it or not, unless the Lord returns first. So why must we die if Jesus said, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die? Well, of course, you would argue that Jesus was speaking about eternal death, and that would be true. The eternal death of the soul in hell is a much more terrifying prospect than the death of the body. In fact, Jesus said so himself. In Matthew 10 and 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But Paul gives us another angle on this in his epistle to the Philippians. And in that book he gives the Christian's death a purpose all of its own. He tells us there, that to die is gain. To die is gain? How rarely do we hear that theology of death explained and stated clearly in our modern sub-Christian funeral services, where all the emphasis is on a celebration of this earthly life, rather than an enthusiastic proclamation of heavenly blessings and benefits. But then in so many cases, a celebration of life is much more appropriate, for the likelihood of the deceased actually being in heaven is so remote. So we speak more of our loss rather than of heaven's gain. And to be fair, for those of us who remain for Christians, there is a huge sense of loss. We have lost a loved one. We have lost companionship, perhaps lost a lifelong friend. For the Christian who has died or who is facing death, to die is gain. So we're going to ask how this can be. That's what our catechist wants us to learn. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata podcast.
So the first thing we want to say is that a Christian's death is different. Different than anyone else's. When a Christian dies, his or her death is not a punishment for sin, which it is for others. Right from the fall in Genesis chapter 3, death has been a part of the curse. It's been part of being a member of Adam's fallen race, a punishment for sin. For the soul that sins shall die. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, The wages of sin is death. But Jesus has defeated death for us. Death's sting has been removed, it has been neutralised. The Christian's death is not in any way a punishment for sin, for that punishment has already been taken by Jesus. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. 1 Corinthians 15 and 54, Paul writes, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian's death is different. It is not a punishment for sin. And for the Christian, death is the end of our earthly struggle. Very frequently we bury people who have suffered from terminal illness, perhaps for many years before they die. Many of them will have bravely fought their illness and their families will want that fact acknowledged at the funeral. So they will say something like, he bravely and courageously fought the virus that killed him. For many years he attended chemotherapy or dialysis or perhaps some series of invasive treatments or operations. He was often tired and very sore. He was often in hospital for many weeks at a time and was in the intensive care ward for a long period. And throughout it all, his only desire was to fight the illness so that he could get better and care for his family again. He never complained at any time, always grateful for all the care and attention he was being given. And now, thanks be to God, he is free from all that pain and his troubles are over. Now that's such a frequent occurrence. But when did you ever hear this at a funeral? For all of his life he has struggled with a dreadful affliction called sin. He was tempted many times, and great was that temptation. He even yielded to it from time to time, and he was frequently on his knees, engaged in spiritual warfare, battling against his sinful human flesh and his old sinful nature, which was trying to drag him down. He attended worship and read the scriptures and sought the Lord for the mortification of sin, but now thanks be to God he is free. All his sin and sorrow and misery is over. He has been set free from sin forever. What a great gain that would be. They would say something like, We rejoice with him that sin no longer has any power over him. Well, that's what happens 
death is the end of our earthly struggle. At death, the believer is released from the presence of sin forever and ever. And then death heralds our entry into glory. This is a positive benefit to the believer's death, isn't it? Our entrance into glory. For not only are we taken away from sin, but we are taken into God's presence. And we cannot take these earthly bodies to heaven with us. We leave them to rot in the ground. We go forward to heaven with the Lord to meet our Saviour face to face, to await the day of the general resurrection of the dead, when Christ shall return and the dead shall be raised with incorruptible bodies just like his glorious body, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The very plain teaching of the Bible is that the soul of the child of God goes to heaven at death. There is no intermediate place. The redeemed of the Lord go to glory. In Second Corinthians 5 and verse 8, Paul writes, We are confident, I say, and willing, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Psalm 73, verse 24 to 25, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. When the believer dies, he goes immediately into the presence of God and he will begin to experience for all eternity something which is far more beautiful, far more fulfilling, more satisfying than anything that he or she has ever known or experienced in this world. Heaven will be fantastic. Is it any wonder that Paul said that to die is gain.
So we've learned that the Christian's death is different. That the Christian's death is the end of the struggles of this life, struggles with sin. And that the Christian's death hurls our entry into heaven's splendour. So what then will that entry into heaven mean for us as believers? I've got a whole list of things here I want to share with you. It will mean, first of all, that we will have a wonderful new home. And it really is a home. Jesus speaks about this new heavenly abode as my Father's house. He said in John 14 and 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. My wife and I have relatives who live in other parts of the world. And from time to time they return to Northern Ireland for a holiday with their parents, staying in the spare room, enjoying being back in their parents' home, speaking of such holidays as coming home, even though they have homes of their own and they've built new lives far away. The place where you grew up, the place where your parents live or lived, that truly is home in every sense of the word. And it always feels good to be back home. When we get to heaven, we are finally home. We are in our Father's house. And best of all, we never have to leave it again. How the Christian looks forward to being there too. William Hendrickson writes, In the heart of God's child there is a longing, yes, even a need for his everlasting home. As the Christian grows older and loses or is about to lose a a devout mother, a trusting sister, a witness-bearing father, a loyal and loving wife, or so on, His attention is drawn away from this earth and is fixed upon heaven. A well-known sermon illustration tells of how a bank had some flowers sent to a competitor that had recently moved to a new building. There was a serious mix-up at the florists. The card sent with the arrangement read, With our deepest sympathy. The florist, who was greatly embarrassed, apologised. But the florist was even more embarrassed when she realised that the card intended for the bank had been attached to a floral arrangement sent to a funeral home in honour of someone who died. That card read, Congratulations on your new location. That would certainly be true for a Christian. Furthermore, William Hendrickson describes our father's house as being a very roomy home. It is a huge mansion with many apartments within it, and because it is the abode of God, it must surely be a very glorious home indeed. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 20 we read this, Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 5, we know, that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, an house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Hebrews 11 and 10, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. There's a longing for home. And that's what characterises the Christian's attitude to heaven. God called Abraham away from his home in Ur of the Chaldees to follow him. 
not knowing where he was ultimately bound, and brought him to the land of Canaan, where he promised him a land to him and to his seed. Abraham wanted a home. All the time he was looking for a permanent home, an immovable city designed and built by the one who designed and created this universe. For Hebrews 11 verse 8 tells us that by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The Christian longs for heaven, just as Abraham longed for his God-made home. That entry into heaven will also mean for the Christian being in the immediate presence of Christ our Redeemer. And when we see him, we shall be like him. How can we ever enjoy the immediate presence of Christ given our sinful condition? Well, we'll be changed to be like him. First John 3 and verse 2 Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In his book Foundations of the Christian Faith, James M. Boyce explains how this will change us as individuals. He tells us that we will be like Christ in holiness, because now we're not holy. We're sinners who sin constantly and must constantly seek forgiveness from the Lord. But when we arrive at heaven, we shall be like Jesus without sin. We shall be like him in knowledge. Right now our knowledge is seriously limited. So much of what we know is mixed with error and misunderstanding. But then, when we get to heaven, we shall know all things. We shall not be omniscient as he is. Not exhaustive knowledge, but we will have accurate knowledge. So we will be like Christ in holiness, in knowledge and in love. Our present love is imperfect. It changes from day to day and it is selective. But on that day we shall love as Jesus loves. Perfect love that never wavers or changes. So J.M. Boyce. But as Boyce further points out, that transformation into his likeness is for all of us. All Christians will be changed. We will all be like Jesus. And that will equip us and prepare us for that wonderful meeting with the Saviour and, of course, to dwell and live together in fellowship and harmony throughout eternity. The poet Fanny Crosby wrote thousands of hymns. There was just one hymn that she kept for herself. It reads, One day the silver cord shall break, And I no more as now shall see. And oh, what joy when I awake Within the palace of the king! And I shall see him face to face, 
and tell the story saved by grace. That was a special hymn just for her. For Crosby was blind. And what joy it brought her to know that the very first face she would see would be of her Saviour when she arrived in his glorious presence in heaven. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 55, we read there of the martyrdom of Stephen, who being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. When we enter into heaven, we will receive a reward. The Bible teaches us that when we get to heaven, we shall receive a reward for our service. Well, we certainly don't serve our master to get a reward. We serve him because we love him, and we love him because he first loved us. But we are so grateful to him and for what he has done for us that we want to serve him willingly. Nevertheless, there is a reward for faithful service. And so it comes as a great encouragement as we labour and toil in this world, as we live for Jesus in a culture, a modern culture, that utterly hates him. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. There's many other references to that heavenly reward. If you access the notes for this podcast, you can read them and you can note them and study them. When we enter into heaven, we will rest from all of our labours. Death is often referred to as rest. Again, William Hendrickson helps us to grasp this. He describes heaven as reclining in the arms of God in a way that a baby would lie in the arms of its mother, perfectly at rest and perfectly at peace. But the mother's arms might tire. The mother might grow weary. God's arms in which we will rest eternally, shall never tire of holding us, for they are the everlasting arms. In Deuteronomy 33 and 27, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. There's other scriptures that talk about the eternal rest of the saints. Revelation 14 and verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, and their works do follow them. And Second Thessalonians 1 and verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In Hebrews 4 and verse 9, There remaineth therefore a rest 
for the people of God. When we enter into heaven, we will enjoy the communion of the saints. We will know one another in heaven. We'll talk and we'll commune with one another. We'll enjoy true, unbroken fellowship together. We must not think, as some do, of heaven as the soul's lonely journey into awareness of God. Heaven is a society, and we shall fully and completely interact with each other, and we will know each other in the way that God intended, and we shall dwell in the company of the redeemed. One day I was passing through a room, and I heard a conversation between two Christian ladies concerning a member of their con congregation who had recently died. They were happy for her. One of them said she'd be singing in the choir with the angels. I couldn't resist joining in the conversation, although my intervention may not have been entirely welcome. Because I stopped and I remarked, No, she won't. And they looked at me, more than a little bit surprised. Perhaps I knew something about their late friend that they didn't know. But I soon continued. She'll not be singing with the angels, for she'll be singing a song that the angels cannot sing. She'll be singing among the host of the redeemed, the great blood-washed throng gathered round the throne of Christ. Revelation 7 and 9 After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Revelation 19 and verse 6 and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. We had received an invitation to a wedding. And despite my own personal human interaction difficulties, we were truly delighted, for it was from some friends of ours whom we don't see very often. People we have known and liked for many, many years, and whose son was now to be married. We'd known him from he was a little boy. So to be with him and his family on the wedding day would be a very great privilege indeed. It was a day to look forward to. We'd meet up with old friends and we'd engage in a joyous act of Christian worship with them in the wedding service. We'd join together in their happiness. We'll bring with us gifts. We would enjoy the fellowship and the communion of sitting down to a fine meal together. So with great anticipation, we awaited the happy day. And when it came, there was no disappointment. A day of great happiness. A few years ago, press reports carried the story of a woman in Switzerland who had married herself. It was a preposterous display of blatant egotism. For a wedding, the uniting of a man and a woman together for life can never logically be a solitary occasion. The very essence of a wedding is a social covenant. 
It is usually celebrated among friends and family, all getting pleasure and fulfilment from each other's company. Wedding feasts have always been accompanied by the rejoicing and friendship and happiness of human interaction and social engagement. So it's no accident that the Bible talks about heaven in such terms and describes our communion with the saints as being like a wedding feast. Revelation 19 and verse 7 Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. At that wedding we attended a few years ago, the guests had gathered in a hotel lounge just before the wedding meal and after the ceremony. Conversation filled the room as people came as more and more people arrived and began to greet each other and catch up in the past and update each other on what directions their life's paths had taken them. Can you imagine an occasion like that at the wedding feast of the Lamb? As the guests gather for the reception, when they begin to tell the stories of their salvation and the whole of creation gradually fills with the sound of the Saviour's praise as we talk of the wonders that the Lord has done for us, heaven is a social experience. But then the doors of the lounge opened and into the midst of the guests walked the bride and groom and the whole atmosphere changed. The people who had been so enraptured with each other's company now turned their gaze toward the door. A gradual hush descended until the hotel's function manager stood and announced authoritatively, Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome the bride and groom? There was applause. There was cheers, there was whistles, there was shouts. People rose to their feet. The moment long anticipated had come, and the happiness was palpable. Imagine the scene. Imagine the scene on that great eternal wedding day, that great feast day, when the company of the redeemed await the bridegroom, and he comes to dwell among us, and we, the church as his bride, dwell together with him. And the friends we meet in heaven will not just be the ones we've known on this earth, for we will meet and know and recognize the Old Testament saints and believers and the New Testament apostles and disciples and the great heroes of the faith of whom we have read in our church history books. And the martyrs, who have given their lives for the Lord and for his cause, we will meet them. We will know them, men and women from every age and every nation and every language. J.C. Ryle in his tract, Shall We Know One Another in Heaven, wrote, There is something to my mind unspeakably glorious in this prospect. 
Few things so strike me in looking forward to the good things yet to come. Heaven will be no strange place to us when we get there. We will not be oppressed by the cold, shy, chilly feeling that we know nothing of our companions. We will feel at home. We shall see all of whom we have read in the scripture and know them all and mark the peculiar graces of each one. We shall look upon Noah and remember his witness for God in ungodly times. We shall look on Abraham and remember his faith, on Isaac and remember his meekness, on Moses and remember his patience, on David and remember all his troubles. We shall sit down with Peter and James and John and Paul and remember all their toil when they laid the foundations of the church. Blessed and glorious will that knowledge and communion be. If it is pleasant to know one or two saints and meet them occasionally now, what will it be to know them all and to dwell with them all forever? J.C. Ryle When we get to heaven, we will actually discover our true purpose in life. You might wonder how that can be. In fact, so great will be our personal fulfilment and social and spiritual interaction when we get there with other saints and with our Lord, that we will truly and for the very first time appreciate that this moment in glory is the very reason why God created us in the first place. We're taught in the Shorter Catechism what is the chief end of man. And man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Some modern evangelism methods are based on the false premise that's Sinners have some innate ability to seek God and that they will have the inclination to do so. And to entice them to make further inquiries, the evangelist will lure them into making what they call a decision for Christ by promising them that God has a wonderful plan for their life, a plan to prosper them in this world. You can, they say, actually have your best life now. And you can achieve your purpose in this world. Now that is the very opposite of biblical teaching. The Christian life in this world demands that the believer must take up his or her cross, must deny himself and follow Christ. Throughout the history of the church, from early times until right now, that self-denial sometimes even involved a martyr's death. So when do we get our best life? When do all our dreams come true? When do we truly find our purpose? Not in this life, in heaven. In heaven all of those things are perfected, where our service to God continues and is perfectly fulfilled as we do what we were created to do. He will be our God and we will be his covenant people. Revelation 21 and verse 1 I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men 
and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. In fact, the Bible describes this heavenly condition as glory. It's a difficult concept for us to grasp. Too much for our human minds to comprehend. Writing in his book, The Body of Divinity, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, expresses this very well. He says, Glory is a perfect state of bliss, which consists in the accumulation and heaping together all the good things of which immortal souls are capable. And truly, here I am at a loss. Or all that I can say falls short of the celestial glory. We shall never fully understand glory until we are in heaven. In Colossians 3 and 4, Paul wrote, When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And that glory will last forever. Heaven is an eternal concept, and our minds find eternity difficult to grasp, or rather impossible to grasp. After all, we can hardly understand what life itself consists of. Louis Burkhoff wrote, We speak of it, that is death, as the cessation of physical life. But then the question immediately arises, just what is life? And we have no answer. We do not know what life is in its essential being, but know it only in its relations and actions. And experience teaches us that where they are severed and ceased, death occurs. Now, if we find life difficult to understand, how much more will eternity baffle us? Yet we are taught in the scriptures of the permanence of heaven. Paul reminds us that everything in this life is temporary. Everything is crumbling away and decaying, and one day it will be gone. But our heavenly home is built to last forever. We shall be forever with the Lord, says Paul in First Thessalonians 4. We will indeed discover our true purpose in life. And when we get to heaven, our souls are made perfect. Earlier in this series of talks on Lord's Day 16, we talked about sanctification. And we said that sanctification was achieved for us positionally at the cross, and it progresses throughout the Christian life. And when we die, that sanctification is completed. And at last, we shall be perfect. So how vastly different is the Christian's departure from this world? It truly is a happy death. In Second Corinthians 5 and verse 8, Paul says, We are confident, I say, and willing, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, and their works to follow them.
Look, let's just sum up this whole Lord's Day 16. For the true believer in Christ, death is not a subject to be avoided or mythologized or sanitized. It would be unwise to do so. Death is one of the very few life events of which we can be absolutely certain. And of course we are plainly exhorted by the psalmist to think seriously about these things. In Psalm 90 and verse 12, Teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. We must consider the end of our life. And we must use what time we have left to us wisely to prepare for that time when we shall stand before our Creator and judge. But for the believer there is no fear in that. It is a wonderful, glorious prospect because of Jesus. His death has changed the nature of our death. In his death we died to sin and are raised to new life in Christ. At the time of our physical death as Christians, we are no longer under the condemnation of the law, that condemnation that results from and is because of our sinful rebellion against God. And so we leave behind us in this world all the temptation and the torture inflicted upon us by the world and the flesh and the devil and we enter into the presence of our wonderful Saviour, the Lord Jesus. So here's the point. Whatever you are enjoying here on this earth, whatever pleases you, whatever excites you, whatever makes you happy, heaven's going to be better. To be with Jesus is far better than anything this earth can ever offer you. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 18 Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. <laughs>